A warm welcome to new listeners and old friends. This is the latest episode of Talking Golf. If you want to hit the ball further, you've got to hit it harder and you've got to get fitter. Learn and how to move. And you've got to learn how to move. So all the forces that are available to you in the golf swing are not blocking your flow of energy. Yeah. They're, they're, they're furthering it through. And then you find your maximum speed and you train until you make that faster. And you train and you keep an eye on your swing so that it's not blocking the flow of energy. Welcome back to Talking Golf. I'm delighted to, uh, to be spending this morning with Dennis Pugh. I think it would be safe to say a legend in coaching terms in, <laughs> in European golf. A legend C- certainly, <laughs> certainly after Carnoustie. A legend in my own mind, yeah, probably so. Uh, no, Carnoustie was fantastic. What a brilliant summer. It's staggering, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it came, uh, came uh, three months of golf from Francesco that's just come out the blue. Fantastic golf. And to be fair, winning at Wentworth would be a, a good year. Yeah. And winning in America would be a very good year. Yep. And winning the Open is a superb year. When you do all three in the space of three months, it's just unbelievable. And that's the first player you've coached who's won a major. Yeah, Hugh, it's been a while uh, coming as well because I've been coaching a long while and I've, <laughs> I've coached players that have won majors but never in the time that they yeah. were with me. And I coached Monty when he was close to, I think, uh, four of the six that he could have won. I yeah. was coaching him. And uh, Mike Harwood I was coaching when he finished runner-up at the Open at Birkdale. Stephen Leaney runner-up to Jim Furyk. That's right, yeah, I remember uh, that very well. Others came close, but uh, it, I thought it wasn't to be. And it was always a niggle to think you can coach at pretty high level in the game and, and not be able to do that. So now I change the focus and say world number one. I'd like to coach world number one. Monty got to two, but yep. then Sir Mr. Woods came along and... Uh, ruined it for everyone. That ruined it for all and one, but <laughs> he was fantastic. But now I think it's something that, that Francesco can aim for. And w- when you got into coaching, did you get into coach at the very top of the game or was that just something that was a product of becoming increasingly good at it? Uh, well, I got into it to get out of debt. I coached for money and uh, I was in debt from not being a very good player. I was an unlucky player insofar. I wasn't very good, and I, sh- I couldn't make a living at it, but I wasn't very bad, so I couldn't stop. And <laughs> I was on the treadmill of, I think next year will be better than last year, and it never was. It was just a continuation of ordering, ordinariness. And you, you got into coaching, was it through Ledbetter? You ended up working for Ledbetter, or were you coaching before you, you got involved no, with David? No, I, uh, I got coaching because David Ledbetter was the assistant to Phil Ritson at Disney World, and I was having lessons playing mini tours. I had a European tour car, but in those days it was only 15 or so events yeah. a year. And in the winter you could go to America and play mini tours. And I did, uh, I was actually better at mini tours. <laughs> two rounds seemed to suit me more, but most <laughs> weeks were only two rounds anyway. Uh, they were good and I enjoyed it. And Phil Ritson helped me. And one day he sat me down in his office and said, you know, I think you want, might want to get involved in coaching. I think there could be a future for you which was a nice thing to say, but I didn't like to hear at the time. And I got to uh, do some stuff with David Ledbetter when he was out at Greenleaf. And then when Nick Fowler won the Open, David became hotter than a hot cake. And and it was very much a question of representing his views in in Europe. And that was for about two or three years that I did that and enjoyed it with David. But NIMG wanted to make schools. It was clear that a method was coming um, David Ledbetter method, and as whilst I thought that was brilliant, um, I started to realise that not everyone swung the same way, 
and went a little bit more independent in my thinking about how best to tackle the job of coaching. And did that mean that you sort of go against David's, uh, I guess, business model? Yeah, is probably yeah. Better way of looking I at think it. in fairness at the time, it wasn't an easy decision for me to make. Uh, it was a against the business model. I wanted to be independent. You couldn't have a lone wolf out there doing yeah. his thing. Um, we went through a less than good friends time, but we're good friends now again. Yeah. Um, I think those things happen. It was a divorce, as, uh, yeah. a coach, a coach's divorce. And, you know, we've all, you've been a good coach and worked with high level players. And you know that divorces happen in golf, be it caddies, coaches and, yep. and, and managers. So, yeah wasn't the time that you go, that was a great time, but it was a necessary time to give me the freedom to move on and coach golf rather than yeah. method coach. So you had the Ledbetter background uh, and a thorough understanding of that. How did you then go on to develop the skills that have led to you being here today? Right, well, Colin Montgomery, really. Uh, I'd had a, a fair degree of success coaching um, Frank Noblo, uh, Greg Turner, Peter O'Malley, uh, Mark Davis and others yep. and I was starting to develop a decent reputation but to be fair I really wasn't being expanded too much in terms of um, golf swing technique. Yeah. I, I tended to stick to pretty much the same central theme and, yeah. and was I would say almost a method coach but not literally. I'd moved away from exactly the same for everyone but I didn't have a broad expansion of what I was prepared to do. And then Monty came along and we got along easily. Uh, after the first session, he won the million dollar challenge when a million dollars challenge was a lot of money. <laughs> now, still a lot of money to me, but they seem to play for that first prize now uh, every week. But uh, so the Monty story developed from that and it became clear that it was about learning how that swing functioned yeah. and making sure it functioned when it rare occasions it didn't. And Monty used to say to me, the most important days you watch me when I'm hitting it well. So when I'm not hitting it well, not that that happened too often, but you know what I look like when I'm hitting it well and what yeah. I look like when I'm hitting it badly. And I really did get to know that that swing could function and did it. Unlucky not to win majors, eight Varden trophies, Europe's number one, world number two. And yet it was a swing that nobody would teach any yeah. youngster. But he, he knew how it worked and so did I. Well, I helped him understand, let's put it that way. <laughs> There's, I have a theory that you really can't consider yourself a serious coach until you've had to understand the intricacies of an unorthodox action. Yeah, I think that... That to me is almost true coaching. That's polish on the yes. uh, coach's uh, CV or, or career or perhaps day-to-day -day job. I think everyone that tries to say, and I've been quite vocal on Twitter and on stages, that as soon as you've got a method, you've got a third theory. The third of the people will love you, a third will hate you, and a third don't really care because it's not their method. So yeah. you start to divide who, who you're available to into basically a third of who you might be available yeah. to. Now, never in any business, it's not a good idea to cut out two thirds of your a potential market. Yeah, for a model to start with. And then you take that beyond the business and go, who, who would it suit? And it was a third, third, third. Certain models that come through techniques over the year certainly help people. Yeah. And it certainly don't help others, and it certainly is less important to others. And here we have that third, third, third. So I'm pretty sure that that got into my mind where I'd like to think that if anyone come to me 
rule one is I think I can help them, but if I can't, I don't want to hurt them. Yeah. I think that's the, the key. So you're not you start doing off, something. Start off any relationship on the basis that how can I do the least amount of damage to this <laughs> yeah, person? Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> and then well, go from there. Uh, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I wouldn't personally use that bedside manner. I'd just, how can I help you? And that's the question I would ask. But then I would ask to myself quietly, and how can I do the least damage? I like that. <laughs> so in terms of the method approach, do you think the method approach makes it... Is it harder to apply that to your leisure player, your club player that we've all, basically that's been, that was certainly my, the start of my business, it was the start of your business. Is it lend itself more to tour level or elite level coaching than it does to leisure coaching? Um, it's a good question. I think that firstly at the, at the elite level, I see less pure methods yeah. being coached. I think that at that level, even if you do believe in a method, you're probably going to be wise enough not to load it fully onto a, yeah. a guy that's making a living at the game and a good living. Yeah. You might adapt it a little bit, but you wouldn't fully load it. I think when you come into the club level, there's, a, there's that one third that really desire a method. They want to go yeah. out and work hard and do their thing. And it really doesn't matter what the method is. They're going to yeah. stick to it and through thick and thin. But... You know, one of the things I've learned over my coaching is if I tell you, well, just go away and practice, you've got to hit a lot of balls to make this work. I don't think that's the way forward for anyone. I think you've got to hit some balls yeah. and you've got to see that it's working quite quickly and then you polish it oh, rather than, than go away and grind it until you've ground yourself into dust, diamonds into dust or lumps of coal, as some of the club golfers are actually. <laughs> Sorry, everyone, uh, but you grind your coal into dust. But either way, whether it's a diamond or a lump of coal, you're going to end up with dust. So, uh, it's, yeah, a, a, with a tournament player, an elite player, the goal's very specific. They have to hit it fewer times yeah. than yes. they did the previous year or the previous six months. Whereas with a club player, you do get an awful lot of people that just enjoy the process of taking lessons and hitting golf balls. Yep, and, and that... That shouldn't be denounced as no, wrong. not at all. It, it's, not at and, all. And There's as much just, golfers as the rest of us. Yeah, and they enjoy the experience. And if you're talking sense to them, common sense, very rare nowadays, um, common sense. But if you are, then it's a good chance that they're going to play better and they're going to yeah. enjoy it more. And uh, the world's a happy place. But the, you and I have been on the range a long while and seen all sorts of characters. And, yeah. you know, the only ones I, I find that are very difficult to teach are the ones that have got... A, an idea that they can just make one change and they're going to be um, Francesco <laughs> in that one change or in times gone by Monty or Nick Faldo or whoever the star player that they want yeah. to be. Um, it's best to bump, almost certainly the best for everyone. I can't say that because I, there's some pretty weird cases out there. They just be the best they can be, yeah. the best version of themselves. And guys like you and me make our living because we help uh, very talented athletes play the game a little bit better, yeah. just a little bit. Well, that, fun, I mean, that leads on to my next question. How much influence in the big picture of things do you and I actually have? Uh, well, we won't discuss the exact percentage we get, but that's the influence. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't play us if we didn't. And it's not a big percentage. No, it's uh, not. Uh, so, look, they're not going to pay us if we didn't do anything. They're not yes. mugs. Uh, there must be some reason tour coaches get paid to do what they do, and it's to deliver results. Yeah. And... If you're delivering results, you basically keep your job, although not in all cases, because some people still think they can go on and do better. That's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened, yeah, it's happened to you. Yeah, happened to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's part of the game we live in. And, uh, you know, don't forget uh, football managers, Premier League managers, have an even shorter lifespan yeah, than golf coaches. And yep. 
golf caddies and golf coaches, it's our job to, to help. And uh, if we're not helping, we, we, our job is to get fired. Yeah. And if you don't <laughs> accept that, then it's probably not the business for you. Uh, yeah, I think there's two things you know that's going to happen. The player's either going to retire or he's going to fire. And you hope for the first, but you expect yep. the second. Yeah, exactly. So let's move on a little bit and talk about your relationship with Francesco, how that got started and how it's, you mean, as long as I've known you, I've known Francesco, so worked on him for a very long time. Uh, how did you first get introduced? Well, not far from where we're sat here. We're on the balcony behind the ninth green at Mill, Wisley. Yep. Sun shining. Well, sun shining. It was 250 yards away down there on the range that uh, he popped off a five handicap, plus five. <laughs> Just as I said that, I thought everyone's going to think five, five, there's a chance for me. Better put a plus in there in front. Uh, plus five, he was top quality player, but he had a very, uh, very much a swing that could be worked with and polished and made yeah. without really changing that swing. It's a different swing, yeah. but it's Francesco's swing better. Yeah. And that started in 2004, I think, 14 years ago. Uh, and was it Francesco and Eduardo in the was. same package? It was. They came buy one, get it, one free? Yeah, buy one, get one free. And uh, uh, very different personalities, very different <laughs> very. ways of going with things. And, uh, you know, I worked with uh, Eduardo for up until the year after the Ryder Cup that he played in 2011. Yeah. So, again, seven years is a long time um, in, any, in, any, in relationship. any relationship. Yep. And it, it came to an end and the fire came. I got fired. And... Francesco and Ross then became the yeah. only two players I coached. So uh, with Ross joining me in 2009 and playing in the 2010 Ryder Cup team. So 2010 was a good Ryder Cup for me because of Francesco, Eduardo and Ross and of course Monty captain. Unfortunately, no win bonuses that week though. No, it's all for free, but it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's fun seeing the, <laughs> the smiling faces with wins and, uh, and they've all been winning Ryder Cups for me. So I'm hoping Paris next week, uh, well, three weeks time as we speak now, is going to be six out of six. But going back to Francesco, he, he pretty determined character. Once he gets it in his head, he's going to do something. He follows it through 100% and from the early initial days, I could see he was going to be good. I couldn't have told you he was going to win the Open, but yeah. I could tell he was good. And uh, every step along the way, he sees as a building step to the next level. He's got remarkable, I call it golf IQ. He's got this remarkable, he seems to have this remarkable ability to make the right decisions. When the decision's been made, he will then see that process through without panic, without I think being that, distracted. I think that's the, the major thing, uh, in, in every sense of the word major, that you see with uh, someone like Francesco going on to being the Open champion, is it has been a step-by-step -step process using what you call golf IQ, and, and, and that's a great way of looking at it. But what he's assembled around him is a team of people he trusts, yeah. respects, and um, also believe so that he will then do the work and, and they all play you all play a very specific role within that team yeah there's not too much uh, overlapping so if we look at the team it's um, i was first on board with swing yeah and then uh, rob goldrop was uh, the trainer yeah and rob rob and i do work together quite uh, a lot because there's a lot of what he does with francesco that i need to be done or understand yeah. what's happening and then if i say to rob i need these moves strengthened in yeah. the swing um, nowadays we're going for power. We make no secret of it. It's to get in the top ten. 
in the world he had to achieve a certain ball speed which yeah. said it has to be more than 170 mile an hour yeah. it was 166 and he's got up to 175. Wow. Now, that's not happened just because of swing stuff it's been found in the gym as well yeah. and uh, what i would say there is that we could look at some ideas on okay he's now a great ball striker but you and I have had this discussion. I know which side of the fence we sit on, but others think you can win tournaments with a putter. You can only lose a tournament with your putter. Yeah. You, you you win it because you putt the best of the good players, yeah. the good hitters. The best ball strikers, pick the best putter that week and you have your winner, that's, by and large. By and large, you're dead right. Yeah. And that's where Mark Brody has been part of the team as well, yeah. because Mark Brody introduced the concept every stroke counts. And to what degree does it count? You know, and, and has helped Francesco in... Um, understanding and analysing what the important parts of his game are. Have you been able to maintain his accuracy off the tee while increasing that ball speed? Yeah, that was the amazing thing, was that the accuracy wasn't lost. It wasn't quite the same, but it wasn't lost because he was able to still find pretty close to centre strikes. Yeah. You know, you may have heard me say the, the primary skill for a world-class player is lots of speed and hit the middle of the club face. The rest of it is, is learned on-job experience. Yeah, yeah. But so what's happened there is that the ball's going further, maybe 20 yards further, so the target's smaller. Yes. <laughs> so he is missing the fairway more, but not that much more. But when he does miss it, he's just missing it. And, and he's, a, he's got a club and a half less into the green. So he's... I would go that it's easier. I would definitely reckon that if you're hitting eight or nine iron from the semi, it's probably an advantage than hitting four or five iron from the fairway. Every time. Um, Except sometimes with Francesco, those four and five irons <laughs> rattle the flagstick. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty accurate with, with his all-round game. So what happened after getting that on board was that um, Dave Aldred yep. was brought in. And people try and find out, what's the mystery of Dave? Well, there's no mystery there. He's, a, he's like a personal trainer who makes sure you do your job. Yeah. He, he's just a sergeant major to one extent. He's a uh, psychologist in the sense he, he tells you what he thinks you need to hear, not what you want to hear. He's yeah. a hard man. He makes. He's from a rugby background, so he doesn't suffer the, uh, the anyone who wants to wimp out in his training. Yeah. And he does things that are, what he calls ugly, and they are quite ugly. They, he, he demands absolutely 100% out of Francesco, like he did with Johnny Wilkinson or Luke yeah. Donald when he worked with those. And the big thing about Dave is that um, he's, he brings an edge of steel to our team. Yeah. Uh, Francesco and myself and Robert are probably a little bit more easygoing. Yeah. And, um, Slightly more passive characters than, more than passive Dave. More passive characters yeah. than Dave. And Dave knows that and he, you know, he's not trying to uh, be anything different, just like we are yeah. or not. Uh, he's, he's tough. He's rough and he makes it hard for Francesco. And as a result, he was an integral part of the team. But then you go to the, um, the way that uh, Phil Kenyon came on board. It's only been early, uh, around just about the players' time, yep. start of the year. And Phil's given him confidence because whilst he's not a great putter, he putted well at the Open. People think he hold everything. Yep. He hold a lot of important parts. But he's not a great natural putter, but he's understanding how to putt better. So Francesco's now got um, an idea of what he needs to do. Yeah. So even if he doesn't do it, he's not searching in the dark. I mean, he was uh, at one point with his putter, he was like a blind man looking for a black cat in a dark room and someone nicked the cat. Um, there was <laughs> no hope. Uh, the cat had gone missing. So that was very good. And then the 
the final man in the team is the hardest worker, the one that gets all, all the tough stuff to do is the caddy, Peo, yeah. Spanish. And they speak in Spanish on the golf course. Yeah. And, and it's quite funny because he speaks to his wife, obviously, in Italian, me in English and Peo in Spanish. We might all be at the same at the same time. So <laughs> chaotic international na nations. I think. It's interesting because I, I interviewed Rob for the podcast and it's fascinating that Rob's explanation of the team is exactly the same, almost to the word, as yours. And that strikes me that you have got an incredible dynamic working relationship. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> That's good. I hope he wasn't going to say anything different. No, it's exactly the same. We haven't all been sat down and fed the same um, hymn sheet to sing from. We just sing our song, and it's the one that Frankie likes to hear. Do you think that the inclusion of Dave helped organise everyone else better? Yeah. Yeah, I think we were all a little bit, this is great, this is easy, just show up, play, yeah. you hit it so well, you know, you're the best striker in the world, you're bound to win. Well, yeah. it don't work like that, you know. He is, in my opinion, if not the best striker in the world, Peter Green, he's one of, yeah. he's statistically number two, so yeah. it's pretty close. And I'd, I'd argue that that's taken into some account some stuff when he wasn't doing yeah. his fitness training and stuff, because it goes back a little further. But for all that, I'm his coach, I'm bound to say that, aren't I? But Dave has made us all aware that you don't get it because you're good. You get it because you're good and you work extremely hard yeah. doing the right things. Not once, not twice, but a hundred times. Funny, I had, I had exactly this, this conversation with someone this week in Switzerland where I'm looking at the range and I'm seeing at least half the guys on the range hitting shots that clearly don't matter to them. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to the putting green and the chipping green and that percentage increases yeah. oh, absolutely. dramatically. And one of the things that I've been trying to impress on the majority of guys that I work with is every single shot must have some value to you. There must be a purpose to what you're doing. Dave has very much yeah. created that environment for, oh, oh, absolutely. for you guys, yeah. isn't it? And uh, that's very clear. And it, it becomes, it's surprising to people who, who would watch from the touchlines because if they're watching at the Wisley, when Dave comes down and does his day work, yeah. as it were, how intensive it is and that, how basically no one's welcomed into the circle. You are, yeah. if he's working with Dave, I go off, yep. they do their thing. Um, members come up and say, well done, for instance, or yep. have a, it's a quick chat. That's clearly made not welcome, yep. but it's a very hard working environment. And if you watch him in the practice rounds, it's a very hard working environment. You watch us warm up, and I say us because it's a yeah. team effort. He hits all the shots, so that's, you know, I'm not claiming that we do much more than um, we prepare him to hit all the shots, but we change things around very distinctly, and um, I might be giving away one of the secrets, and uh, it's that we relax it down to a crazy level of, well, now, it's going through the motions of warming up. Yeah. It's called a warm-up, and taking out some of the testing aspects of, uh, you know, how percentages and everything yeah. during warm-up because the point of the warm-up is to get into the physical and mental state yeah. to play golf and I I say on the Saturday of the Open anyone watching uh, the warm-ups would think we were larking around almost there was so much joking and going on now do we know how serious it is of course we do we're not idiots <laughs> but looking down the range at some very famous big names they look under much more pressure than, yeah. than Frankie was perhaps showing he was under. And it's uh, it's a little bit interesting then to see on Twitter in the evening um, some three or four comments about how relaxed Francesco and we all looked on yeah. the range. 
It was but a conscious. The ugly stuff's been done. The ugly stuff through the yeah, week, yeah, through the, the months before, the days before. Yeah, it gets uglier in practice. There's more hard conversation in practice than in tournament. Yeah, and uh, Francesco's reached the point where he's more likely to lose his temper and get aggravated in a practice round than he is in a tournament round. And uh, there's a good reason for that because when you're practicing, you're still in the training mode. Yeah, when you're playing, you're in the playing mode, and aggravation doesn't help play. Amazing story. It's a, it's nice. Well, it's fantastic to sort of been watching it from the sidelines for well, say since two thousand and four, and to see how he's developed almost continually through that period, which is so unusual for a for yeah. a golfer. There's yeah. not been any fall off the planet moments. He's just he's got his process, and he just refines that and gets better and better and better along the way. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about coaching skills now. Let's let's stick to coaching at elite level. What are the key skills that you think you need to survive out there? Well, you've got to be pretty much, you've got to have a pretty thick skin to start with. Yeah. You've got to be able to take uh, the fact that you're you're going to be criticised. Yeah. Um, you've got to and not just by the player you coach, by <laughs> everyone. <laughs> it's a fact out there, you know, caddies and fellow coaches and players, and it's not a social environment. So yeah. I would say you don't go out there to make friends, don't go out there to make enemies, just go out there to do your job. And if you're any good at it, you'll stay out there. There'll be longevity. Yeah. And if you're not, what's the point? Yes. You're not going to be out there long anyway. Yeah, it's going to cost you money every week. Yeah, it's going to cost you a lot. And, um, you know, the glory looks easy, but it's not. So the primary skill would be uh, a pretty strong ego. Yeah. Like you need to be pretty sure that you are able to cope on your own because yeah. there's, there's no support for you out there. And uh, so that knowledge, you need to have enough knowledge that you can be believable and trusted by the players. And uh, that, that knowledge is, players are pretty educated now as well. Yeah. So when you start talking to them, you're not talking to people who don't already know. So if you're, if you're, if you're not absolutely crystal clear in what you want them to do, and you haven't got that fundamental background knowledge, you're not gonna- Yeah, um, you have to know what you know very well. Yeah. You don't need to know everything, no. but in terms of what you coach, you have to be—you have to have a very, very robust yeah. understanding of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so robust understanding and a robust personality. Yeah. And strangely enough, you have to be quite—the uh, word I want to use is likable—but there's be plenty of people who don't like me, so that's uh, that's okay as <laughs> well. I'm but, not sure that applies to everyone who coaches for a living out there. No, but no, to the player that you're with. Yeah. Uh, you've got to be able to. As I said, likeables may not be the word, get alongable with. You've got to have a, a degree of communication with the player. That's probably a better word. A communication level where you're able to get things done under high, high pressures where you know, not everyone's in the best mood and frustration yeah. is coming up. And a lot of the times uh, people just can't cope with that. You know, yeah, pers just, personally, I find it very difficult to coach a player who I don't like or respect. I guess because of that, it becomes very difficult to create a relationship. Yes, yes. Uh, there has to be a relationship where they trust your judgment, you trust their judgment, and I think, I think in a the, mutual uh, respect, maybe. So. I think that's a sign that it's fragmenting when you stop liking each other. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the love has gone. Uh, I mean, there's times when you're frustrated by things, and it's not always to do with the way they play golf. It's some of the things they do and, and yeah. how they choose to spend and what they do with their time. Which but, you have zero control over. Uh, absolutely. But, you know, I've... Now, watching the scene, I don't 
partake all of it now because I just coached Ross and Francesco yeah. and they're both guys that you know I'd consider pals as yeah. well as I uh, I got a working relationship with them but I've also got pretty good friendships as well. How do you how important do you think it is having how, how can I put this without offending you having being older having <laughs> basically being able to command more respect because of your age and experience? Uh, yeah I mean it, it don't hurt if you to the point that you can only spend so many years, as Bob Torrance told me, the late, great Bob Torrance, only so many years can you stand on a range with your fingers crossed, <laughs> praying that that overpaid schoolboy is going to hit a good shot. <laughs> now, times have moved on. I'm not going to say he was absolutely right, but I've crossed my fingers behind yeah. my back and, and thought, please let this be a good one. Because yeah. um, you know, you're under that sort of pressure where the vagaries of, of a bad shot can, uh, you know, mean tremendous things in terms of whether you get hired or fired. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not your talents, fortunately, in my case. You know, well, very fortunately, <laughs> in my case, just now. You know, to hit the golf ball is one thing. But being able to give clear, concise, useful feedback on a tour range and been, having done it for a long, long time, you know, I've, I've been on tour ranges for 30-odd uh, years. And, uh, you know, the, the, lack, the lack of hair, what's left's grey, the wrinkles, all must, must mean a sort of um, guru-like. I might go in a guru outfit now to the next event. Ride a cup <laughs> in a guru outfit. Go as Yoda. Yoda. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's be fair, I'm, I'm 64 in, I'm trying to work it out in like, a few days' time, just the Saturday before the Ryder Cup. And I reckon I can go to, I'm 72. And then at level par, at level fours, I'm going to say, yeah, I think I'm just going to walk away and, and possibly just stagger through nine holes with the misses and um, find something more less stressful than professional And you coaching. choose golf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going, I'm certainly, I love the game, but it's a stress, stressful existence. I mean, one of the things that struck me, I mean, knowing you now, I guess it must be nearly 20 years that we've known one another, yeah. that you're one of the few guys who does this for a living who still hits a lot of golf balls and plays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is, is there any value to that? Uh, Please don't, don't tell me you do it for relaxation. I don't do it. I do it because I'm married to a, a, a golfer and Nettie is absolutely addicted to the game. My son Robert got down to plus one and, you know, during his formative, formative years, it was good to be able to play like Sunny Del Force yeah. three times with him. I also do... I use my own game as an experiment that's perhaps gone wrong, but it's an experiment nonetheless, is that I can uh, just try things out and see what it feels like. And, you know, if you, if you listen to me on a range and, and the word you'd hear a lot, feel, feel, what's that feel? Yeah. Do you feel this? It's feel. Um, I use that word a lot because um, I'm a big believer in that if we get a feel going together, then you go out on the golf course and use that feeling. It's really the only tangible thing a player has. Yeah, I don't use as much video now other than to show what's really happening. Yeah. Diagnosis with Francesco and Ross isn't so much about uh, um, positional stuff. It's about um, are they doing their things that they're supposed yeah. to do well. Um, it would be lovely to be able to say, and I still enjoy hitting golf balls. I don't, it hurts. It's, yeah something I feel like I have to do. I try and put aside uh, three hours a week for hitting golf yeah. balls. And I practice a lot of putting because if I am going to play, uh, I get annoyed with my incompetence on the greens because usually for me it's to try to make up for all the trash that has gone before <laughs> it. And as, as we know, you can't win with your putter. So when I get 
arguing with people on Twitter. It's from a, not only Mark Brody's um, fantastic records, but it's also my bitter experience. Yeah. If you live by the party, you're going to be dying by it. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we're starting, certainly as a coaching community now, we're getting a little bit smarter about what makes, what comprises a good player. Yeah. And you just need to look at the number one player in the world through history. It's always been one of the best five drivers of the ball from that era or that generation. Yeah. And of course, you know, it comes back to that thing where people want to believe and, and love to believe that, uh, you know, if they just put a little bit more work in on their putting, it would be great. Well, <laughs> you do need to practice your putting and, and certainly uh, uh, it's all part of the game, but let's not say it's the major part. Totally agree. But there is a, a story that I'd like to share, and it's, and it's an opinion rather than a story now, of, of looking and talking uh, about the energy in a golf swing and where does it come from. And I'd probably give you a fairly controversial comment is that you, you don't make power in your golf swing, you transfer your energy through your golf swing. So what I'm saying is that if an athlete is trained properly outside of his golf practice yep. and he hits the golf ball with a technique that allows all that energy to flow through with no blocks, it's called a powerful swing. Someone with less power or putting less energy in could make that same set of movements, copy them faithfully and still not uh, hit the ball anywhere near as far. And the reason being is they're athletes and some athletes can lift heavier weights and run faster. So what I would say is the role of technique now has become clear to me is to facilitate the energy that the athlete wants to put yep. into the and shot. And is capable of. And is capable of, but yep. in real terms, copying a long hitter positionally won't make you a long hitter. He'll make you have his positions and still yeah. be a short hitter. Yep. If you want to hit the ball further, you've got to hit it harder and you've got to get fitter. Learn and how to move. And you've got to learn how to move. So you can learn. So all the forces that are available to you in the goal swing are not blocking your flow of energy. Yeah. They're, they're, they're furthering it through. And then you find your maximum speed and you train until you make that faster. And you train and you keep an eye on your swing so that it's not blocking the flow of energy. Now, I said to you when I said that, it's going to, not everyone's going to like it, Yep. but it's where I'm at. And, and there, there's still a lot of people out there who believe in the value of positions. They believe in, in they coach that or they, they yep. practice that in their own game. And certainly as, as I get older and move worse, I play way worse. <laughs> way mean, worse. There's some, I would say that once you've got some basic positions in play, and then once you've got, you know how they relate to your own swing, yours yep. or mine, um, then it's just a question of, are we blocking whatever energy we've got left? Uh, you're not as old as me, but energy becomes very much a thing to conserve as the years <laughs> go by. And then you use uh, sparingly. That's why they got forward tees. You know, yeah. I go out on the Wismy and play off the yellows as Great much believer as I in the, can. In the forward tee. <laughs> forward tees are Much brilliant. more enjoyable. Yeah. Because if you do hit it in the rubbish, at least you're closer to the green. Yeah. And why hold, why hold too many short putts with friends? Pick it up. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, Dennis, I'm, we're going to wind it up now. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Hugh. I think thank we've you. got plenty more content here if you've ever got the time to record another one. I know that, <laughs> I know that people enjoy listening to you. Uh, many congratulations to you, everyone involved in, in Francesco, not just Francesco's major, but it has the last, well, last 15 yeah. years of his life. And uh, I hope we can sit down at some point soon and have another conversation. I do too. Are you going to buy me the champagne now? Yeah, oh, champagne good. now. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Take care.